Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Greg Storr. All three of us are here. Yes, I'm so glad that we have a full house today so that I can embarrass myself by saying that even though I promised that we were going to be talking about the December sitting this week, we're not actually going to do that. That's because the Supreme Court granted what are likely to be some of the biggest cases of the term. And it took moves to fast track the first appeal in one of the criminal prosecutions against former President Trump. So let's start off with those grants, one of which was in the long anticipated case of access to abortion pills. Kimberly, what exactly did the Supreme Court agree to hear on Wednesday? Sure, Greg. Well, the Supreme Court agreed to consider limits on access to the most popular form of abortion in the country, that is medical abortion. Specifically, the justices agreed to consider access to the drug mifepristone. So, Kimberly, there were three appeals that reached the justices, but the court didn't take up all three. Can you talk about the significance of that? Sure. So, you know, this case started in a federal district court in Texas, which sided with this group of doctors, which is challenging FDA actions. And that district court sided with those doctors. The Fifth Circuit pulled back on that a little bit. And one of the things that the Fifth Circuit did when it pulled back was to undo the lower court's ruling, um, finding that the initial approval of mifepristone way back in 2000 was, in fact, lawful. And so the Supreme Court declined to reconsider that decision. So what that means is that that is not going to be an issue before the justices. So what does the grant of this case mean for access to mifepristone right now? Well, it means that no matter what the justices decide in these cases, mifepristone isn't going to be taken off the shelves wholesale. But there are still some important limits that the justices could put on uh, access and distribution for these drugs. What are the justices actually going to be considering in this case? So among the many provisions that these doctors challenged were a set of regulations in 2016 and an enforcement decision in 2021 that actually lifted um, some safety measures that had initially been put in place um, to access mifepristone. So these regulations extended the time that these drugs could be used to terminate pregnancy um, early on. And um, it also eliminated the need to go to visit a doctor in person to get the drug. So those are the kinds of limits that the Supreme Court is going to be considering. So the Fifth Circuit uh, sort of reimposed some limits on mifepristone. What was, the, what was its reasoning in doing that? Right. So the Fifth Circuit looked at these limits and said that the FDA hadn't considered um, some of the risks of mifepristone. You know, the FDA says that mifepristone is extremely safe to use. It's They say that it's safer than Tylenol, safer than Viagra. But the Fifth Circuit found that the FDA hadn't adequately considered all the evidence. Um, and so it's really a, a challenge to the process that the Fifth Circuit upheld. So anytime you say abortion, that's big news at the Supreme Court. But the arguments are likely to focus on the technical issue of standing, right? Yeah. So one of the big um, issues here that, you know, has gotten a lot of attention in the lower courts and at the Supreme Court, this is cases already been up at the Supreme Court before, um, is this technical issue of standing. And really the question there is whether or not these doctors who do not actually prescribe medication abortion, whether or not they've been adequately harmed so that, you know, the federal courts can sort of 
consider their claims. And so I expect that that's going to be getting a lot of attention as opposed to, you know, what the Fifth Circuit really focused on, which was this idea of the FDA's process for making these changes. And so what should we expect next? Well, uh, the Supreme Court did agree to take the case, so there'll be briefing. In, and then I would expect an argument sometime, what, what do you think, Greg, maybe March um, for these? For these? Probably late March. Uh, yeah. It could be February, March. Um, but sometime this term, I would expect them to have a decision before the end of June. In addition to the high-profile abortion case, the justices also took up the first appeals involving January 6th defendants. So, Greg, who is Joseph Fisher? So Joseph Fisher is one of the people who was in the Capitol on that date, January 6, uh, 2021. He's a former Pennsylvania police officer. He is somebody who sent some rather provocative texts beforehand saying things like, if Trump don't get in, we better get to war. Uh, he was at the ellipse on the, the day of Donald Trump's speech there. He says he didn't march to the Capitol, well, started to head home, but then came back when he realized people were going in the Capitol. Uh, he says he was only in the Capitol four minutes, but prosecutors say in a seven-count indictment that he assaulted at least one police officer and encouraged other rioters to, to charge. And so what is the issue that is in front of the justices in this case? So there is a law that was passed after the Enron collapse in, in 2002 that uh, bars certain things, which we can talk about, uh, with regard to official proceedings. It was set up basically to uh, react to Arthur Anderson's uh, shredding of documents to thwart federal investigators in the Enron investigation. Let's talk about that statute that you just mentioned. Uh, what exactly is the language of that? So the key language for purposes of this case is that the law, it outlaws, and, and you, can, you can go to prison for as much as 20 years, someone who corruptly alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record document or other object. That's, that's one provision. Now picture that you know, applying to like document shredding. And then there's a second prong, and this is really the key. It applies to anyone who otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding. And so the, the fight is really about whether that word otherwise encompasses what happened at the Capitol that day. And so what did the lower court say about that? So four lower court judges have considered this, and they basically came up with four different reasons. So <laughs> you started with a district judge who, who said this statute is basically all about documents. You need to have a document for it to, to kick in. Two of the judges on the D.C. Circuit said, no, actually, it's much broader than that, at least with regard to the document issue. It doesn't just have to be a document. It can be all forms of corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding. Uh, those two judges disagreed on something else, but we don't need to get into that. And then finally, there's a dissenting judge, uh, uh, Greg Katzis, who's a Republican appointee, who said it doesn't have to be a document, but it at least has to be about impairing evidence. And in this case, uh, the fact that they're trying to disrupt Congress is not impairing hearing evidence. Could this case impact any of the other January 6th cases or Donald Trump's cases? Yeah, very much so. So just starting with the, the January 6th cases, there are about 300 cases where prosecutors have invoked this provision. And there are 69 sentences that have been affected by somebody being convicted or, or pleading guilty. And then with Donald Trump, and of course, this is a, you know, a big reason everybody's going to be watching this case, it's, it's sort of complicated. So there's both the issue of timing and the issue of substance. Substantively, it could mean that two of the four counts against him get tossed out if the Supreme Court agrees with Mr. Fisher. And then in terms of the timing, uh, this is a case that's in federal court in Washington. Trial there is... Uh, currently scheduled to start March the 4th, 
And uh, given that, as I said, two of the four counts involve this very thing that the Supreme Court is is dealing with, it could give Donald Trump another argument. He would like to delay that trial, and it could give him a, another argument for delaying that trial until the Supreme Court rules. Well, Greg, speaking of delaying that trial, the justices this week also signaled that they may add yet another high-profile appeal to its docket, this one involving that very trial. Uh, here, Special Counsel Jack Smith asked the Supreme Court to decide if the former president is entitled to absolute immunity from being criminally prosecuted for his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. So, Lydia, uh, can you back up for us and remind listeners what exactly a former President Trump is being charged with and why? So a federal grand jury in D.C. indicted Trump in August on uh, four charges related to his alleged systematic and deliberate efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election and also uh, prevent the lawful transfer of power to his successor, uh, who we know is President Joe Biden. So Trump has been charged with four criminal counts of conspiracy that involves conspiring to defraud the United States, um, conspiring to corruptly obstruct the certification of the presidential election results on January 6, 2021, and conspiring to violate people's constitutional right to vote and have their vote counted. And so how did this get to the Supreme Court? So it started when Trump filed a motion to dismiss these charges. You know, he argued that he enjoys absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for acts taken within what he says are the outer parameter of his official responsibilities and that the allegations against him fall within that scope. He argued that he can't be criminally prosecuted under the Constitution's double jeopardy protections and also the impeachment clause, you know, because he was impeached but not actually convicted. So the federal district court in D.C. denied his request and Trump has now appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. And, you know, Trump has actually asked for a stay of all the trial court proceedings while the appeals court decides what to do with that uh, that case. Special counsel Jack Smith is now asking the Supreme Court to step in and actually rule before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, makes a decision. And, you know, this filing is pretty significant because it marks the first time that the Supreme Court has been asked to intervene in one of the four pending criminal proceedings against Donald Trump. So why is it, what arguments does the special counsel make that the Supreme Court should be stepping in here? Right. So the special counsel says that it's of paramount importance for the public and everyone involved in Trump's immunity claims um, for these to be resolved as quickly as possible. You know, they argue there's nothing in the text, the structure or the history to support Trump's claims here uh, that he's immune from federal prosecution. And although the Supreme Court has shielded presidents from civil suits um, for actions they've taken while in office, the special counsel says that they're not immune from criminal liability. So they're saying that neither the separation of powers nor Trump's acquittal in the impeachment proceedings really lifts him above the reach of federal criminal law. So what is the timeline? When are we going to find out whether the Supreme Court's going to step in now? Well, the trial in the district court is scheduled to begin March 4th um, of 2024, and the special counsel has asked the court to fast track its consideration, and the court agreed uh, to expedite its review of whether to hear this case, um, and they ordered Trump to respond by December 20th. That was two days after the government had wanted. So there is a good chance if they take this that they could add it to their docket this term, and we could have a decision um, soon. So, Lydia, on the petition, um, some people were surprised by the fact that Michael Dreeben was included um, on the petition as well. Why was that significant? 
That's right. We noticed that Michael Dreeben was listed as part of the prosecutorial team here. Um, you know, Dreeben is a high-profile criminal and Supreme Court expert. Uh, he's worked with special counsel Robert Mueller in his investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. Um, he's also worked for the Justice Department for a long time. He was uh, the deputy in charge of the Solicitor General's criminal caseload. You know, and I chatted with attorneys who said that, like, he carries a lot of weight with the justices and, you know, they really care what he has to say. And so it's it's a it's a coup for the prosecutorial team to have someone like Michael Dreeben on their side. Dreeben was in private practice before this. Um, you know, he left the Justice Department in 2019 and he's been with the O'Melveny and Myers firm. And uh, the firm said he's no longer with that office. So uh, he's now working for DOJ. So I, I this may not just be a question for Lydia, because I don't know that we have an answer to this. But what do you guys think is going to happen as far as timing? I mean, the Supreme Court signaled that um, it's sort of ready to move on a fast track. But like things kind of get moving pretty quickly if they're going to grant the case, get briefing, hear it and have a decision by March 4th. Yeah, we were talking about that as to whether or not it matters to the Supreme Court that they resolve this issue, you know, and get a decision so that a trial could take place before the presidential election. I'm not sure if there are enough votes um, on the bench for that to happen. But, I, you know, the special counsel's office is arguing that this is of public importance and that, you know, people should have all the information about a candidate um, that is happens to be the front runner for the Republican Party, you know, before they head to the polls. One, one case that Jack Smith mentioned in his filing is the case of the Nixon tapes case, which is probably the best direct parallel because it was also a petition for cert before judgment, skip the appeals court uh, for the sake of a criminal trial that was going on. And the court resolved that in the span of about about two months there, uh, actually hearing arguments over the summer. So perhaps that's a, a framework to look at. One thing to think about, though, is the D.C. Circuit has also come out with a briefing schedule. So it's proceeding, as Lydia indicated, on parallel tracks. The the D.C. Circuit is acting as though it's going to be deciding this case. And it set down a briefing schedule and suggested it might not even need to hear oral arguments in the case, or it suggested, you know, if there are any oral arguments, we'll tell you that later. So it's possible the Supreme Court might wait a few weeks and see what the D.C. Circuit does. But then don't we end up right back here if, you know, the former president loses that case and he just appeals again and it's right back at the Supreme Court. So that's definitely what the special counsel's office is arguing. Like if we wait for the normal appeals process to play out, like, you know, then you don't get this decision, you know, in an expeditious you know, manner. One one small question that I've been wondering is, since the special counsel is now encouraging the Supreme Court to take it up, it's so important, Supreme Court, you need to you know jump in right now. If the D.C. Circuit goes ahead and rules and rules in favor of the special counsel against Donald Trump, does that mean the special counsel can't really argue for denying Donald Trump's cert petition at that point? Can the special Does the special counsel have to sort of uh, acquiesce in the Supreme Court getting involved at that point? I mean, it does sort of seem like an issue that the Supreme Court is going to eventually have to weigh in. Whether that happens before March 4th, I don't know. But it seems like this this one's for them. That's why you get paid the big bucks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for this week's episode. We'll be back next week with an end-of-the-year look at the most notable moments from oral arguments so far this term. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, It's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, 
newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know, but you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts.